This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell, and on today's show, can you imagine the conditions you would have lived in before the virus if your situation has actually become better during the virus? Well, you don't have to imagine some kind of dystopian science fiction novel or movie, because that frightening reality actually exists for some migrants and refugees detained now for years in what were supposed to be temporary and have turned into permanent detention centers. Centers that are poorly resourced, staffed, and at times with ten times as many migrants and refugees as they were designed to serve. Prior to the virus on Greek islands in the Aegean Sea, hid away from the rest of the world, migrants and refugees were the targets of roaming armed neo-Nazi vigilante bands who arrived from across Europe to stand up to the government in Athens and fight for fascist autonomy while targeting the camps with deadly violence. Of course, you can't keep all that hate going during a global pandemic forcing quarantine, and you can't keep disrespecting a national government for long before they send in the troops, as Greek had done just prior to the outbreak. So yeah, with no outbreak in the camps and few cases on the island, things are actually to some very, very slight degree better under the virus for migrants and refugees, despite the still abusive treatment from Greece Turkey, the EU, the UN, and the international community more generally, and the horrible conditions of camps that do not have the clean water and soap to wash hands, the space to socially distant, or the medical needs that are necessary to combat an outbreak when that outbreak happens. We'll get a disturbing report on what was happening with migrants and refugees fleeing to Europe across the Greek-Turkey border right before the world was hit by the plague, when we speak in a few minutes to returning guest Pavlos Rufos, who wrote the Brooklyn Rail article, A Disaster Foretold, which you can find at brooklynrail.org. Pavlos is a social activist who lives and writes in Berlin and is author of A Happy Future is a Thing of the Past, The Greek Crisis, and Other Disasters, which we discussed with Pavlos on our show back in November of 2018. You can hear that interview at our website, thisishell.com. Pavlos has been active in Greece's social movement since the 1990s and has written on Greece and the economic crisis for the Brooklyn Rail as well as Berlin's jungle world. Pavlos has worked as a film editor and is currently a Ph.D. candidate on German economic policy and ordo-liberalism at the University of Kassel. Follow Pavlos on Twitter at PRufos, that's P-R-O-U-F-O-S. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, what did you do this weekend? Uh, I found two rat heads ten minutes ago when I was walking up the steps to do the show. Really? Yeah, when it's uh, Mel's turn, he will make no excuses for the terror. So he also, uh, there were two fresh new rat heads Friday as well. And I think that he skipped a meal yesterday because of the rats that you're talking about. So, yeah, ra- yeah Mel's been a, on a tear. He does a pretty good job separating those rats from their heads. Is it just the head and the tail, or is it just the head? Uh, I've only found the heads in some uh, assorted intestines. <laughs> you can go, I think they're still down there. Should I, Sweet. I'm probably not going to put this on Instagram. But, uh, <laughs> come down to Carrie's Lounge if you want to see some uh, gore. Alex will have this week's hangover cure. We'll share this week in Rotten History and tell you what's happening on this week's shows. And we have some listeners to thank for sharing last week's shows as well. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Hell, and Alex has this week's Hangover Cure. 
The Six Hangover Cure is taking a nap. Dr. Nikit Sanpal, MD, an adjunct professor at Touro College of Osteopathic Medicine in New York, is quoted in a 2019 Prevention.com article. You are on Prevention.com a lot, Chuck. Uh, five hangover cures actually work according to science, saying sleep is very underrated in terms of hangover treatment. Dr. Sanpal explains even if you pass out immediately after a few glasses of wine, the quality of sleep you're getting is actually a lot worse than normal. So Paul states that while lack of sleep doesn't actually cause a hangover, it may make your symptoms worse. The article concludes, to help cure your hangover, take a nap. Budgeting time for extra sleep with will nixed next day sluggishness. Well, this may be a, a pre-show tongue twister. Nixed next day <laughs> sluggishness. So makes this week's hangover cure, taking a nap. That sounds good. That sounds really good right now. Even though I'm not hungover, I'd really like to take a nap. The future ain't what it used to be. This is how... And now a bit of an update on what has happened since we were on last. So we stream This Is Hell live Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time as we do the show here in Chicago, Illinois, the capital of the Great Lakes. The show is then podcast shortly after the live stream, but we are live and podcast shortly after at thisishell.com Monday through Thursday, and then on Friday at 10 a.m., and again, podcast shortly after. You can only hear us if you subscribe to the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. This is Hell is completely listener-supported without any grants or advertising re revenue of any kind with the aim of avoiding as many conflicts of interest as we possibly can, especially financial conflicts. So that's why we do this Patreon podcast. It's what helps out our bottom line. It is our bottom line. So last week on our Thursday show, during listener feedback, and you can email us at chuckatthisishell.com or send us a message via Facebook or Twitter, and we'll read your comments, suggestions, or even criticism on air. On last Thursday's show, I mentioned how I got an email from Eric Newcomer. Eric Newcomer. I love saying that name. Eric Newcomer. A reporter at Bloomberg News who wrote to me saying, I'm working on a story about the future of leftist podcasting now that Bernie Sanders' campaign for president is over. I'd be curious to let, get your perspective if you have some time to talk on the phone, oddly. In quarantine, under the virus, yeah, I do have a lot of time to talk on the phone. Last week, I said I would share with you whatever conversation I did have with Eric. I emailed Eric back with a time that would work in my phone number, but alas, I never heard from Eric Newcomer. For those of you who are not subscribers on Patreon, I explained how I think I know why I never heard back from Eric Newcomer, because I think Eric Newcomer may have been listening to last Thursday's show when I mentioned that Bernie Sanders' campaign for president in 2015 began approximately 20 years after we started doing this show. So, what will our show be like after the Bernie Sanders campaign ends and has ended? Well, it's going to be a lot like This Is Hell was for the first 20 years without a Bernie Sanders running for president. I'm afraid Eric may have tuned in because I never heard back from Eric Newcomer. But is there a perspective out there that Bernie Sanders was the left? That without Bernie Sanders running for president, there is no left? And where is this perspective coming from? From outside the left? From inside? Did the U.S. left have absolutely no direction until Bernie Sanders came along, and now without him, the left can go back to into hibernation again, waiting for the next charismatic leader to come about and take the reins, only to be defeated again? And the left... 
again evaporates. Are there those who, without Bernie Sanders, are politically rudderless, who need a major political party candidate for president to guide their politics? With the end of Sanders' campaign, is that the end of a call for universal health care, free in-state college tuition, the end of student debt, the dismantling of the military-industrial complex, and a real plan to address climate change? Okay, Bernie Sanders didn't want to dismantle the military-industrial complex. I just threw that in there to make people think a little, a little bit about how the left is more than Bernie Sanders. Many critics have been saying on our show, dating back nearly 20 years prior to Bernie Sanders announcing his first campaign for president, that there is no left in the United States, that all there is is a centrist opposition to the far-right Republican Party, which is in full embrace of fundamentalist reactionaries who are racing as fast as they can toward fascism. From Bloomberg News' perspective, from the media's perspective, the left doesn't exist unless you have a major political party candidate representing what left there is in the U.S. To the media, if you are not represented by a major political celebrity within the news media, your cause does not exist. But this is not the media. This is hell, and we do not define a movement by their singular political celebrity representative. The media needs a face of any movement. That's why they always ask who is a group's leader. They know how to make celebrities. And that's why Occupy pissed off so many in the media. Because Occupy refused to create a celebrity, to offer a celebrity as a leader in a pursuit of something called democracy. Then, to further troll the media, Occupy refused to give demands and a lack of leader or demands does not fit into the news media's breaking news time framing of world events. So they got antagonistic and fast. So no, I never heard back from Eric Newcomer at Bloomberg News who wanted to talk about leftist podcasting now that Bernie Sanders is no longer running for president, which has about as much impact on our show as Bernie Sanders' lack of candidacy had on the first 20 years of This Is Hell. On Friday, during the Patreon podcast, I also got subscribers caught up on what is happening in small-town America via the pages of a small-town newspaper I got a gift subscription to over the holidays, the Houghton Lake Resorter, which covers Roscommon County, Michigan, in the northern part of the state's lower peninsula. In the Your Opinion section, the letters to the editor section on the editorial page, one letter promoted a conspiracy theory. The theory is that hospitals are overcounting COVID-19 deaths because they can bill Medicare more for those patients than others under the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, or CARES Act, you know, the one President Trump signed into law. However, there is absolutely no evidence of fraudulent billing, none whatsoever. So unless President Trump is in on the conspiracy to inflate COVID-19 death numbers, the conspiracy doesn't really work. But apparently it does work enough to warrant a front page article on Saturday's New York Times. The Times went deep on the conspiracy theory, kind of. Okay, they didn't. Their story mentioned, meandered around the problem with conspiracy theories, the way they get out in the public, how they are disseminated online and the way they can go from spurious rumor to news at the speed of sound. What the Times did not mention in any part of their big front page story and on another full page inside dedicated to the same story is that the Republican Minnesota State Senator Scott Jensen, who is a physician, never said the fraud was actually happening. The person who purported this theory never said fraud was happening, only that it was possible. It's plausible. It was just a conspiracy theory. He also later said there was no evidence that any fraud had been committed and that the number of dead from coronavirus was likely underestimated as we are all short on testing. 
That's what Jensen said. That Jensen never said, uh, what Jensen never said is what was being claimed that he said. That, like all conspiracy theories, it starts with an implication, an allusion to something, never con concrete, that leads to an illusion, a mirage, something that only exists in the desperate imagination of someone who has lost touch with reality. But instead of seeing through the mirage, the Times leaves readers, after dozens of column inches, still unaware that Dr. Senator Jensen does not believe doctors are committing fraud or that numbers of coronavirus deaths are undercounted. Somehow that never gets in their article. But if you want to hear my full report on what's happening at the lake, you got to subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. On tomorrow's This Is Hell, I still can't stop thinking about Aaron Hatton's writing on Americans' relationship to work that we discussed last week when we were talking about her book, Coerced. I can't stop asking myself, how does only being workers and consumers affect the way that we relate with one another, that we view ourselves? Because that seems to have a lot to do with the fact that this is hell. Coming up, the plight of migrants and refugees at Europe's border who are now permanently in temporary camps with deplorable conditions. We'll also have rotten history and what's happening on the rest of this week's shows. Alex, first, what is this humming sound? Do you know what is going on? I don't hear it. I There's a, maze, a huge humming sound on my side, like there is plumbing being worked on right now which i think is actually happening <laughs> oh uh there is a plumbing van actually right underneath us I, i'm not picking it up over the mic so uh, okay, good. it might just be bad okay. for you all right <laughs> noam chomsky called this is hell sanity in talk radio so clearly and sadly noam's gone insane this is hell the eu continues to push down the road the issues facing refugees and migrants fleeing their homelands in search of safety and survival hoping that time will somehow solve their situation but it never does and conditions keep getting worse for those detained here to tell us europe's externalization of their migrant and refugee issues and why that keeps making things worse social activist pavlos rufos wrote the brooklyn rail article a disaster foretold which you can find at brooklynrail.org welcome back to this is hell pavlos hi chuck very nice to be back thanks for inviting me uh Pavlos was on the show in the past. He has written a book called A Happy Future is a Thing of the Past, The Greek Crisis and Other Disasters, which we discussed with Pavlos on our show back in November 2018. You can hear that interview at our website, thisishell.com. Pavlos is a social activist and writes in Berlin, and he's been active in Greece's social movement since the 1990s and writes on a regular basis, on a regular basis for about the economic crisis for the Brooklyn Rail as well as Berlin's jungle world. Pavlos has worked as a film editor and is currently a Ph.D. candidate on German economic policy and ordo liberalism at the University of Kassel. Follow Pavlos on Twitter at P. Rufos. You write when the Greek government council of national security declared that it would be closing down its borders with turkey on march 1st 2020 the language used fell nothing short of one announcing a military operation the militarized escalation came two days after president erdogan announced that turkey will open its borders to europe to ease the burden of a new wave of people fleeing war-torn syria you add a parallel observation is warranted. There was nothing sudden about what happened in March 2020. What came into the open during those days was instead an entirely expected and con consistently predicted consequence of a situation that has been building up for at least five years. The 
pretense that this was unexpected served only as a pathetic attempt to deny this simple reality and as a diversion from the inevitable conclusion that the migration policies of the last five years made such events unavoidable. Delaying the inevitable is not sustainable. And the longer you avoid the inevitable, as you know, Pavlos, the inevitable always seems to get worse. Why, in your opinion, does capitalism, as you point out, contrary to the underlying principle, it appears to guide decision-making in today's capitalist world, delaying the inevitable is not a strategy for avoiding it altogether. Why does capitalism delay the inevitable instead of addressing it? Why would capitalism threaten its own long-term sustainability by making problems worse by delaying? Well, that's a kind of structural question about capitalism. Um, I would say the simple answer would be that uh, capitalism is a system of social relations that has very deep contradictions that cannot be resolved within its own framework. So what capitalism does, um, would, the way it progresses historically is to try and mediate or mitigate and um, kind of um, yeah, mediate those relations, those contradictory relations and conflicts um, for its own profit. Um, there, come, the, there are moments in time when that becomes unsustainable, and that's when we see the explosion of social antagonism, um, conflict, and revolutions. But um, to the extent that none of these have been successful, um, the story continues. Why does capitalism do so poorly in a crisis? Or is it unfair to say capitalism does poorly during a crisis, that the crisis, like the current virus we are facing today, is the problem and capitalism is not? Well, it really depends, in, in a sense, um, how we define doing poorly during a crisis, right? Because to a certain extent, what we know for sure is that there's a recurrent crisis happening in the history of capitalism. It is it is pretty obvious that um, this system, this mode of production cannot avoid crisis coming back. But at the same time, I'm not so sure that we can say that it has been doing poorly. From the perspective of capital, and um, those crises so far have been overcome or at least um, put in the background <clears throat> um, without the contradictions that come out during the crisis and we're reaching a point where they um, they threaten the actual continuation of capital. So to the extent, if we look at, for example, the, the, the economic crisis that started 2007 and 8, and the Eurozone crisis 2010, we are like 10 years ahead now from this, uh, these times. Capitalism was seriously threatened to a certain extent. The continuation of this system, of this economic system, was under threat. Uh, the people on the top were actually panicking. But what happened 10 years after, even despite those contradictions, despite um, those problems, and despite the social movements that um, emerged, what we have is a continuation of more or less the same um, recipe. Um, so I don't know if, if, if one can really say that capitalism is doing poorly um, in the crisis. It's, it seems to be, it's probably more relevant or more accurate to say that um, capitalism lives through crisis. Which is a very frightening, frightening thing to think about. You write, in tandem with the logic of the wider organization of global ca capital, the situation of migrants and refugees corresponds to what past guest on our show, Mike Davis, recently described as an ongoing triage whereby significant parts of the world population are effectively made invisible and written off. 
why does so much of the world want immigrants to be invisible, to be migrants and refugees, to not be seen? What do they represent that we do not want to recognize or realize about the world within which we live? Well, there there are different ways of of answering that question. Um, There's historical sense, um, there's historical way to look at it, but I I would focus on on two different aspects. One of the main reasons, okay, let me start like this. First of all, the the question of migration is as old as as human history, right? It is not something new, it is not something that has changed, it's something that is absolutely um, descriptive of the of the passage of humans through this planet, uh, the whole world has been built around migration, and our our day to day is not different. Um, why do they appear as invisible, especially today? Well, they, in a sense, you can say they always have, but I would say the two reasons that make the situation even worse today are um, what Mike Davis described as this triage is the idea that. Um, the the development of the economy can accommodate um, larger parts of the population is something that seems to have been abandoned. Um, We can see that already um, in in Western developed capitalist countries in terms of how they treat their own populations and the poor in those places. I think the US is a perfect example of that. But um, unfortunately, the hierarchy of, of, of of oppression, if such a thing could be um, used, is is even worse for those who cross countries and 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 reach different places from the ones that they were born in, because one of the key differences that they have from the rest of us is that they are not even immediately acknowledged as um, having the same rights, the same opportunities, the same humanity. So this is what I understand by Mike Davis's um, succinct kind of uh, description. This triage is that these people are written off entirely, and they're not—they're not even considered, um, you know, they're, they're second-class citizens or not even citizens. This is second-class category um, of of uh, of people, and they're written off because that is a way. Um, if if we can frame migration policy in the last 30, 40 years within a specific context, one of the, the key things that managing migration um, has, has meant in those decades is to keep migra- migrants and refugees outside of a visible kind of um, um, framework, while at the same time working through a process of selection, right? And um, so certain migrants might be able, and I'm talking mostly about Europe now, right? Um, certain migrants will be, through a process of selection, allowed to um, enter the national territories of different member states of the European Union. But this will be done in a very specific, effective, um, within inverted commas, and uh, let's say organized bureaucratic way. The rest um, will be left out and not allowed inside. And in order for that to happen, what the European Union has done for quite some time now is what you said before, they externalize the issues. So they make countries that are bordering around Europe, they make them responsible for keeping migrants at bay, not allowing them 
to um, cross into European territory, and in exchange they get some, um, you know, cash or or funds or whatever. Different different forms of agreements have been drawn up, and this is this unfortunately has quite a long story. It doesn't it didn't start now, um, after 2015, but it goes all the way back to um, deals that Italy had with uh, Gaddafi in Libya before the regime was overthrown, and and. This is the main kind of understanding. So you keep migrants and refugees outside. You do not allow them to to enter like European territory and to have access to the rights and, and responsibilities that are meant to be given uh, according to international law to refugees and migrants. You keep them invisible, you keep them outside, and then um, you, you, you perform like a process of like selective you know, according to different different considerations like economic considerations, etc., you select a few um, to 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 be allowed to go in, and that 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 is the kind of framework within which the migration policy um, operated in the European Union, and that kind of a um, framework was threatened in 2015 when you had this massive. Um, movement of people, um, mostly the majority were from Syria, war-torn Syria, but not only from Syria, you had from other countries as well, of course, from Afghanistan, Iraq, all the way to Pakistan and uh, countries of Northern Africa. But what you had is like a collectivized kind of movement of people who were all together crossing uh, the borders. So the, this, the, the operationalizing this this migration policy of like closing down borders, making selections, and leaving out the rest in the in the kind of, you know, outskirts of Europe, did not really work in 2015. Pavlos, you write that by hiding the cruel treatment of migrants and refugees behind inaccessible internment camps in countries with ambiguous relations to international protection agreements, the EU hoped to maintain the spectacle that it remains internally a union that respects legal procedures and its own regulations, while at the same time uh, restricting irregular movements. Is the EU acting above the law, outside the law? Does passing laws and invoking regulations and then not enforcing those rules work in leading the public to believe that their society is more humane than it actually is? Does this kind of ploy of making a promise and then not fulfilling those promises for migrants and refugees, does that work in convincing citizens of the EU that the EU is far more humane than it is in reality? Well, I mean, this, this is a bit of a complicated question, but let, let me try and put it this way. Um, to a certain extent, the EU does uphold the international regulations and agreements that it has signed. It does do that internally, right? So once you are inside um, Europe, to a certain extent, and within inverted commas, I say this, but a certain understanding of the legal process has to be kept. And... Um, we're going to talk about this later on um, as well, I'm guessing. But um, this is one of the reasons that in Greece you had, um, you know, specific developments in concerning the migrants in the camps and their relocation in the mainland, etc. But what I'm trying to say is that there is a level at which upholding the law is actually met in the EU. But, and this is like one of the key points, um, with those countries with which the EU has made deals in order to manage migration, as for example, 
Turkey or Libya in the past, etc. In those countries themselves are not in the same way um, upholding international regulations. And in the example of Turkey, one of the key reasons is that the the, the Geneva Convention that that deals with the questions of migrants and refugees has not been fully signed by Turkey. It has signed it with a with a territorial clause that allows it to to differentiate between migrants and refugees. So Turkey, for example, until this moment, um, is required by law to give full um, rights and, and, and be responsible for migrants and refugees only to the extent that they come from Europe. So it does not have the obligation, according to international law, to treat migrants and refugees from other countries um, with the same rights. Now, this is a very blind spot for the for the EU-Turkey deal, which was the the the, the kind of the, the the legal framework of the outcome of 2015. So many commentators and and, and writers have pointed out the fact that um, Turkey does not have um, does not um, how do you say fulfill the legal obligations for being designated a so-called third safe country to which migrants and refugees could be sent instead of Europe. But at the same time, Europe can pretend that um, the the regulations and the international treaties and the conventions and all the necessary agreements within the EU are being kept. Now, what happens in Turkey is a different situation and it is not up to the EU, at least that's what they pretend, it's not up to them to decide it. In most cases, what they would say is that they are pressuring in terms of politically and diplomatically and, and in different ways, they're pressuring for, for Turkey to expand its recognition of, of official international law and agreements. At the same time, the reality for the last five years is that those people who end up in Turkey, and there is a, quite a large amount of the migrant population in Turkey, this is something that maybe many and listeners in the U.S. do not know, but Turkey has approximately 3 to 3.5 million refugees from Syria and surrounding areas, a quite significant amount of people over there. And they have been there for since um, the beginning of the Syrian war, let's say, for, for many people. Um, in contrast, Europe, the, the big... the big um, event that changed uh, the whole discourse and the whole situation um, Europe concerned one million people so already the contrast is like quite significant and it's, it's difficult it's it's difficult to avoid and one should pay attention to the fact that one million people crossing into Europe created a huge mess um, increased um, nationalism xenophobia and racist um, attacks against migrants whereas in the in the countries like turkey and other countries the actual migrant population um, is much larger and different um different circumstances it is worth noting in general when talking about migration that the biggest amounts of migrants and refugees are located in developing countries and not in the developed countries. This is something also that needs to be taken into account, and a lot of people do not notice that the whole, the whole propaganda around migration is 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 um, centered around this idea that the migration and and refugee and border crossings 
represent some kind of security threat or some kind of destabilizing factor for developed countries, whereas in reality, the, the overwhelming majority of migrants and refugees um, are in this moment located in developing countries. You mentioned it as a security threat. What is the lens through which migrant and refugee policy is created within the EU? Is it through a lens of security? Is it through a lens of economic relations? Is it through a lens of humanitarianism? Because I'm trying to figure out if uh, which one of those things characterize it so we can understand the position from which the EU writes their migrant and refugee policy. Well, um, in a certain way, all of the above, I would have to say. Uh, they're all in a sense, part of the considerations that uh, they make, but of course they don't all carry the same weight. If I try to, to separate those issues, I would say, of course, um, a, a number one priority at the top of the list would be the economic concerns. And that is mainly because the European Union and the European Monetary Union are primarily economic units and not something else. So the economic concern is right at the center of the considerations. But of course, the economic concern itself is not as easy and it's a complicated issue because you have different national economies with different needs and different considerations on that issue. So for example, you would have Germany that has um, a kind of observed um, problem with uh, demand, like lack of um, Germans do not spend a lot, let's put it that way. You have a problem with uh, the aging of the population that creates issues with like um, insurance um, and um, social security issues. Um, and then you have countries that have uh, very low, um, for example, um, labor supply. So migration from that perspective would be um, a very positive um, kind of thing so to bring out people who would fill out those spots. Um, and of course, usually those spots are low paid, precarious, but this is a different issue that we can maybe talk about later on. From that perspective, so from the economic perspective, there are reasons why migration is seen positively. And this is one of the key reasons why neoliberals, for example, are also, at least some of them, some of the tendencies within neoliberalism would be very much in favor of opening borders and allowing migration, but purely to the extent that this could be um, economically accommodated and, um, and taken in. Now, the question of security, um, that plays a role in, 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 the, in the understanding of, of or, or, or the ways in which policy has been created, but it is not, of course, a central one. In what sense? The, there is numerous reports, one after the other, it's just like an endless list of reports that show that the absolute overwhelming majority of migrants who come do not pose any security threat whatsoever. This is something that is absolutely clear to everyone who's concerned and who takes the time um, to look around on what's happening. Um, at the same time, it is quite useful to present the whole question of migration as one of security, because security and the uncertainty that brings and the idea of like a, the fear that is created behind propagating this um, as they did in, in Greece 
in early March 2020 as a, as a foreign invasion. That creates a completely different set of understandings and, and approaches that, that kind of, um, how do you say, the influence, the way the population um, understands and relates to that issue. So the, the security question plays a part, but mostly, I would say, as a propaganda issue. It is not something that is actually, um, that has any kind of particular um, force. Now, the last bit, the humanitarian aspect, this is also, this is also true. Um, the humanitarian aspect is, to a certain extent, um, something that comes out of the legal situation. The legal process is, to a certain extent, um, framed around issues of humanitarian help and giving aid to people in need. So to a certain extent, the legal background has this aspect. At the same time, you have a kind of liberal um, understanding of migration that is very much interested in distancing itself from the far-right nationalist kind of expressions and, and then the whole understanding of migration as something entirely hostile. So you have this kind of liberal understanding which which has a more humanitarian approach towards the question of migration. But at the end of the day, what the, the migration policy in the European Union does through this process of either externalizing it and then managing a selective few um, who would manage to, to, to come through, what they do is they're trying to balance between the kind of far-right, racist, outright rejection of migration and the more liberal humanitarian acceptance of migration up to a certain extent, right? Because there's always this, this sense that, of course, you can't just open the borders and do whatever. You, can, you cannot just allow everyone to come in and give them equal rights because that would completely, you know, um, abolish the whole idea of how you can, you can exploit migrants once, once they manage to get through. But in any case, what the what this what this approach of managing migration does is trying to balance through this suit. So it does not accept um, outright this kind of hostile, racist, right wing position, but it also does not fully endorse the kind of humanitarian, um, liberal kind of view. So it kind of balances this out, and it gives a little bit towards the liberal side by saying that we're going to have a selection, we're going to have a, a managed migration policy. And then it also gives a little bit to the right wing by um, making sure that the borders are closed, that they're very much militarized, that the, 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 the deals and the agreements that they make ensure that the you know, third countries take the, the burden, let's say, within inverted commas, of um, dealing with those thousands, um, millions of people who are trying to escape uh, war, poverty, and absolute destitution. And these, these policies were put into place under Syriza, not the current government, New Democracy, as New Democracy won the elections last year. But a lot of these policies, as I was saying, were put in place by uh, Syriza. Uh, they uh, took out uh, PTSD as a sign of vulnerability for that affects uh, Syrian refugees. They would accept them into the country at one time uh, based on PTSD as a sign of vulnerability, but they took that away. The Syriza was employing a lot, of po a lot of migrant and refugee policies, just like the Obama administration was that were then adopted by the right-wing government that came in following them. Did 
Tsaritsa have to oblige by those right-wing tropes when it comes to migrant and refugee policy in order to stay in power because it didn't keep them in power. I'm just trying to figure out exactly Mm -hmm. why hate is something that is such an integral part of the policy, the migrant and refugee policy, not only in the EU, but within Greece, when that is a policy that is only forwarded by a minority, a very vocal minority, but a minority of the population. Well, um, as you know, and as we've already discussed in the past, I don't have a lot of positive things to say about Syriza, but at the same time, I think we need to be um, quite fair and objective. I, I don't think that one can actually say that Syriza is, is responsible for this um, um, hate that has come out as a way of expressing one's uh, position towards migration. Syriza is not responsible. What Syriza did in the same way as it did in the economic field is fully comply to EU policy. So they did that and as soon as they had accepted that this is the situation, they actually went over their heads to overcompensate for the fact that they had initially presented themselves as hostile to such policies. So during Syriza's time, of course, a lot of um, negative things happen in the migration front. Of course, there was a lot of um, problematic situations, but this was more or less framed, and I'm not excusing Syriza here, but this was more or less framed in terms of how do we make EU policy function? How do we implement it in the best possible way? So in that context, what Syriza was faced with, for example, during those five years, um, four years before it lost the election, was a situation of let's say, the main framework of the migration management of the EU was the EU-Turkey deal, right? So Syriza, as the government of the country in which the EU-Turkey deal um, was meant to be implemented, was trying to find the best way to implement that. What One of the things that they came, uh, they came across as, a, as an obstacle to implementing the EU-Turkey deal was the fact that my Migrants or refugees that are recognized as belonging to vulnerable groups are not going to be eligible to be immediately sent back to Turkey as others. Now, this is a legal situation. This is something recognized by the United Nations and all the international migration authorities. So they're obliged to follow that process. What, what, they, what, they, what they ran across, however, was the fact that a lot of people were actually being um, being um, classified as vulnerable. That, in a, in a certain way, it, it makes absolute sense, right? Of course, when you have families who come from places that have been uh, bombed, right, of course you're going to have people in a vulnerable state. When you have people injured, you have people with uh, health issues, you have unaccompanied minors, you have people with severe psychological trauma. All this is absolutely... Um, ra- Logical, right? So for that reason, it is very normal to put these groups into, um, to designate them as vulnerable groups. But what the series has realized is that there were far too many people designated as vulnerable. So they tried gradually from, you know, in different ways to minimize the actual categories that would pass as vulnerable in order to um, stop them from being exempt uh, from being um, sent back to Turkey. 
So that was one of the things that Syriza definitely did. And, uh, and there are other examples as well um, that are definitely not showing Syriza in, in, in good light. At the same time, we also have to acknowledge new democracy um, has been much worse in terms of the, the question of migration. And one of the reasons for that is because the new democracy government was elected in, in the summer of 2019 with a number of promises, mostly around the idea that they're going to get rid of Syriza and its incredible failures and da da da, whatever you want. But these promises that they made in order to, to make themselves different from Syriza were on the one hand based on economic improvement, right? So they said that they're going to lower taxes, increase wages, da da da, everything that every government or, or um, political party says in the pre election period to appease um, the public. But the reality in Greece, the economic reality in Greece, is that none of these measures could actually be implemented. Because even though Greece is now formally outside um, the Memorandum of Understanding agreements and the bailout mechanisms, it is still supervised and monitored by the EU and the European Monetary Union. And um, they have very strict limits in terms of how they organize the budget, where they spend what they could cut in terms of taxes, etc. There is also an automatic stabilizer that was put in place during Syriza's government, which means this is kind of like a, the neoliberal wet dream. It's it means that whenever spending, public spending or state spending reaches a certain level, and it 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 crosses like a certain threshold, then immediately from another part of the budget, uh, a cut is being made without any of that process. Um, requiring any kind of parliamentary ratification or discussion or even um, published. It's not even publicized. So these these sets, these mechanisms are already in place in Greece. So new democracy could not um, deliver so much at that level despite its promises. But what it could deliver is the second side of, of new democracy's kind of paradigm as a right-wing party, which is law and order. So when your democracy was elected, knowing that they could not do many different things, they focused very much on this idea that they will uphold law and order, presenting Greece as if it was in the, in the, in the kind of in the brink of absolute collapse and social conflict, which is, of course, nonsense. One of the issues that they used for the law order campaign was this ridiculous idea of cleaning up Exarchia. Exarchia is a, is a, is a small neighborhood in the center of Athens that has a history of of anarchist and, and left radical left agitation. It is it's a different topic not to be talked about now, but it is indicative of the fact that new democracy could base a policy, like as a national government, base a policy of law and order simply by focusing on one small neighborhood of Athens. That in itself is kind of indicative. Having said that, the second issue in which um, new democracy promised um, to establish, to re-establish, as they said, law and order, was the question of migration. And there they made quite significant um, different things, significantly different things from uh, what Syriza had done. So what they did, for example, one of the first laws that was passed by this government, not just about the question of migration in general, one of the first laws was for like um, cutting off access for migrants and refugees to healthcare. 
That was one of the first things that they did as um, an elected government. And then along along the lines, what they did is they they promised to uh, initiate a process of what they call decongesting the islands. That basically means um, because of the EU-Turkey deal, one of the key lo- geographical locations where migrants end up when they cross the border to Greece are these islands where there are various um, makeshift, I would say, camps. They're supposed to be organized, but they're not. Um, so there's these camps in horrible conditions. And of course, the numbers um, in those camps have been increasing for a variety of reasons that can explain, uh, if I'm not speaking too much. The, in, the, in the last few years, the only way, let's put it this way, the only way for migrants who arrive in Greece and who are not sent back to Turkey, the only way for them to reach the mainland was primarily through a program run by the United Nations that um, rented out or bought, I think, rented out housing and apartments and could actually organize the transfer of people from the camps to the mainland. Now, there's a limit to the amount of people that can actually be transferred because there's a limit in the amount of houses that the United Nations can offer. So that meant, and there are other reasons why the transfers were being blockaded, but I'm not going to tell you the details. Let's just say that um, the population in the islands was increasing beyond the capacity of the camps, beyond the capacity of the organizations that are working there. Um, And there were many, many people being concentrated and that created um, a kind of backlash from local um, inhabitants. New democracy came with the policy of saying, we are going to solve this problem quick and easy. Their suggestion was to create new camps on the same islands, but closed ones, right? That was the main idea that they had. And they thought that because they had the support of local politicians and the local population, which had just voted for new democracy members in the islands, because they had that support, that would have been an easy plan to implement. But in reality, that's not what happened. What happened was that as soon as they tried to start building um, these closed camps in um, in the islands, um, the local population reacted in a very um, confrontative way. So there were like massive demonstrations and huge riots against the police that were sent from Athens to oversee the building of these camps to such an extent, and the population was so much unified in that, that they actually, the, the government was forced to withdraw the police forces from the islands and stop the, the plan altogether. So the, the, the plan that New Democracy had on how to solve the problem of the congestion in the camps in the islands um, proved to be a failure. Pro- proved to be a and huge. That- it proved to be a huge failure, and uh, it seems like new de- uh, new democracy kind of set the stage for the kind of violence that happened. Golden Dawn went onto the islands, and they were fighting against the uh, uh, fighting for some sort of fascist autonomy that they believed that the islands could have. Uh, there were roaming mobs, uh, vigilante mobs that were beating up migrants. Uh, some were even being killed. To what extent can we blame 
the rhetoric of new democracy for setting the stage that led to the far right-wing violence on the islands against migrants and refugees? Well, um, again, this is a, it's a bit of a more complicated issue, but let me let me try to somehow summarize it. The situation in the islands in the last few years has changed. And what I, what I mean by that is that although initially um, there was, and it was widely reported, there was a lot of support and, and to a certain extent a sense of solidarity given to migrants and refugees in the Greek islands, um, that situation started to change after a while. And one of the key reasons that the, the attitude of local populations changed was one of the reasons, not the only one, but one of the reasons was the realization that their, the presence of migrants and refugees was not a temporary one. A lot of the support and solidarity that was happening was completely understandable, completely um, um, honorable, but it was based on the idea that these populations were in a transit phase, transit phase. so they were they were passing through. So as passing through, people thought, you know, they saw the images in front of them, like next to the houses in their beaches where they went. They saw women and children and old people arriving in in in, in very dire situations. So they did help at first. Once the realization set in that um, the policies of both EU and the Greek government were centered around the idea that the population will be permanently placed in those, um, again, makeshift camps, the situation started to change. So the attitude in the island started to change. Of course, it didn't change for everyone, right? Because, um, as I try and explain an article in a bit more detail, there were certain benefits to be gained from the presence of, of migrants and refugees. There was a huge presence of NGOs and all their workers and volunteers and all these people who needed a place to stay, needed a car to move around. They would buy in the local markets. The same goes for right, migrants and refugees. If we look at the, um, just the camp of Moria, um, which is located in Lesbos that now has approximately 19 to 20,000 people. These people get some money every month from the United Nations um, and the International Migration Organization, which basically boils down to 90 euros per person or 250 per family, something along those lines. And most of that money is spent locally. So to a certain extent, right, the, the, the existence and presence of migrants and refugees plus the organizations, the NGOs and the aid organizations that were there did actually revitalize a certain part of the, of the local economy. So a lot of people remained, um, if not necessarily sympathetic, but they would be maybe indifferent, indefinite, definitely not hostile to the situation. But of course, there were all these people within um, the communities in those islands that did not see it in the same way. They had no way of accessing those funds. So they started um, um, complaining. Now, I want to make clear something that a lot of people are not always um, ready to accept. Of course, certain of the complaints that um, local population had are justified. I use one example in the article 
um, a local farmer whose whose land and, and animals are next to the camp. They have um, continuously um, complained about the fact that their trees, their olive trees, are being um, chopped down, and that their animals are being killed and and eaten by migrants in the camps. And that is, of course, if 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 one was, you know, a farmer, and then everything they had was being um, lost, it is absolutely natural to um, to have grievances and and to complain about it. But the question and the this is one of the key problems and how why the, the question of migration is complicated is to start to, to try and think why this situation is happening and who eventually is to blame for that. Because if you look at f- from the perspective of the migrants, they're literally left with no other choice. As I said, those camps that they, these people have survived, some, some of them been there for three or four, even five years. These camps are completely makeshift. They have overspilled, the population is so large that they have overspilled outside the kind of few buildings that were built, and people live in tents. In the cold winter with snow, people live in tents that have absolutely no heating whatsoever. So, of course, if you're in a situation like that, any one of us would have done the absolute same thing. They would have cut down a tree that's next to it and use it as a fire to warm yourselves. If eating means that you have to stand in line for three hours in order to get a a bowl of soup or some lentils and rice to feed your own family, then of course, you know, if you see a goat or a a pig, you might be tempted to go for that. So the the reason why migrants were were forced um, by circumstances to, to resort to such actions was absolutely understandable as well. So the key question in my in, in, in my mind is, why is it that a situation like that that brings two different groups into conflict, why is it that the people responsible for that situation are not the ones who are being blamed? Are, so the farmers, sorry, yeah. I was going to say who are being held responsible, and they and they should be the ones who are being held responsible. Uh, uh, Pavlos, I've got uh, one last question for you. We've been speaking with social activist Pavlos Rufos, who wrote the Brooklyn Rail article, A Disaster Foretold, which you can find at brooklynrail.org. And you should definitely read this article in its entirety. It goes into great detail as to how the whole process works and the many challenges that the refugees and migrants are facing. Also, go back to thisishell.com and listen to our interview that we had with Pavlos about his book, A Happy Future is a Thing of the Past, The Greek Crisis and Other Disasters, which took place back in November of 2018. You can follow Pavlos on Twitter at PRufos, that's P-R-O-U-F-O-S, as we do with all of our guests. And unfortunately, we don't have a lot of time for this. Uh, So uh, as we do with all of our guests, Pavlos, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response are considering the fact that the far-right, golden-dawn, neo-Nazi, at least sympathizers, are now sheltering in place, considering the fact that there are many protocols, safety protocols that are in place to keep that kind of violence kind of put off to the side for a while, at least during the virus, are migrants and refugees on the Greek islands better or worse off with the global pandemic? Well, um, to the extent that the lockdown was actually uh, in place, it was definitely difficult for um, local fascist and racist to mobilize and demonstrate 
and to repeat many of the things that they did in early March, which was, for example, making roadblocks across the islands and attacking migrants or even NGO um, members who were just passing through. So they, they could not do that for sure. So that was, you know, the lockdown was in a sense, you know, um, a kind of like, um, you know, a, a positive outcome. At the same time, however, we have to keep in mind that the the biggest threat um, that migrants and refugees are facing is not, however important that is, it is not from local vigilantes, fascists who once in a while get to um, get together and mobilize against them. The biggest threat has comes from the actual policies that have been implemented at a state level. This is what keeps migrants in a position of vulnerability that keeps them under threat and that allows for um, fascists and racists to utilize their situation in order to um, make their hate speeches and, 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 and mobilize people. Um, in that sense, the greatest fear of everyone that I spoke to when I was in Lesbos just before the lockdown was initiated was what would happen if there were um, COVID-19 cases reported in the camps. That was everyone's greatest fear because as we've already established, this population is already in triage, right? They're already kind of written off. So if, if the governments of the, of the developed world all around right now, if you look around the United States, the United Kingdom, you see governments that are literally not particularly interested in dealing with the, with the problem of their own population or they're doing completely false choices, you can imagine what that would have meant for migrants that are already written off. So the biggest fear was how to avoid a, a, a misanthropic backlash in cases, um, in, in case there was some kind of COVID-19 cases in the island. Um, this has not happened yet. I think we're extremely lucky and we have to we have to say that because it's still unclear what would happen. Um, but we haven't had any cases, at least in, in Lesbos. I'm speaking about Lesbos and Moria, the biggest camp. There were some cases reported in other camps in the mainland, but the biggest camp in Moria hasn't until that moment, until this moment, um, recorded any cases. Um, but what they have done, what the government has done is to, is in a way even worse, at the same time as the lockdown for the general population, what they said is that they forbid migrants from leaving the camp. And now this is important because um, one of the one of the key things that the migrants could still enjoy under the circumstances in which they live was to go outside to the to the main cities to do some extra shopping, to feed themselves, to walk around um, in the in the seafront, to have a coffee, to have a drink to feel like normal human beings. And that was one of the key things that they could do, despite the fact that they had to live in Moria camp. Now, this has been taken away. With the excuse of the COVID-19 threat, um, migrants are not allowed to leave the camps and they are um, stopped and fined if they are caught outside the camps. If they go to a supermarket to get some rice or some vegetables, they get caught and they get fined. and just in terms of like understanding the, the the perspective, the fine in Greece, if you get caught outside and if you, you haven't got permission to be outside is 150 euros. As I said before, 
migrants receive 90 euros per month. Wow. So you can imagine what the what that means. So this is how the government has been treating um, and dealing with the issue. At the same time, I need to say that they have tried to move um, many people from Moria. I'm, I'm focusing on Moria because it's the biggest camp, right? Um, they have tried to move people mainland. They have initiated this program of moving 1,500 mostly unaccompanied minors towards the mainland. But this has come across various problems as well. For example, just last week, they tried to move um, a group of 50 women and children, and I cannot emphasize this enough, 50 women and children to a hotel in Edessa in the north part of Greece. Local racist fascists um, mobilized and burned down the hotel. So they could not take those women and children to that hotel. This is the situation. Um, this is how they reacted. So I haven't got a lot of positive things to say, I'm afraid, but um, this is a situation we're facing and this is a situation that we have to be constantly fighting. And against. you can follow uh, Pavlos to keep on top of this. Follow him on Twitter at P. Rufos. Again, you can go to our website, thisishell.com. Put Pavlos' name in uh, our web search there, our website search there, and you can find our interview from 2008, November 2008, at thisishell.com. Pavlos, thank you so much for being back on the show. This is a very intense conversation, and I enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed our last conversation. Thanks so much for being back on our show. Thanks a lot, Chuck. Thanks for having me back. Thanks. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. On May 11th, 1846, 174 years ago this Monday, today, intent on fulfilling so-called manifest destiny by expanding the United States west to the Pacific Ocean, ocean which could would entail armed conquest of Mexican territory, U.S. President James K. Polk asked Congress for a declaration of war against Mexico. Yeah, I guess Mexicans are right when they say they didn't cross the border. The border crossed them. Congress passed the declaration of war two days later on May 13, 174 years ago this Wednesday. This formally opened the Mexican-American War. You know, one of those wars between the Revolutionary and Civil Wars that get ignored in your K-12 history curriculum. Polk had already ordered the U.S. Army into Mexican territory as a provocation because the U.S. has been trolling Mexico for a very, very long time. An armed response by Mexican troops had resulted in bloodshed. Polk seized upon this as an excuse for his war because if there's one thing the U.S. loves to do, it's find an excuse to go to war. Polk enjoyed overwhelming congressional and public support in declaring war. Among the minority opposing the war were the abolitionist Frederick Douglass and a young freshman congressman named Abraham Lincoln, a couple of no-good peaceniks. Over the next 20 months, the war would claim the lives of some 1,700 U.S. and 5,000 Mexican troops, and it would end with Mexico giving up a vast expanse of territory including what are now the states of California, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, and parts of New Mexico, Colorado, and Wyoming. And from now on, I think I'm going to refer to the area west of the Mississippi as Old Mexico, because there's nothing quite like trolling long-dead President James K. Polk. In Rotten History on May 15, 1793, 227 years ago this Friday in northern Spain, a mechanically inclined farmer named Diego Marin Aguilera ascended the hill of an ancient Muslim castle on a moonlit night 
accompanied by his sister and his blacksmith, dragging a strange machine he had built with the blacksmith's help. On a wooden frame fitted with iron hinges and joints, it had wings of stretched cloth covered in bird feathers. It was intended as a flying machine, and Marine was not joking. He had designed it after years of carefully studying the flight and behavior of birds. He strapped himself into the contraption and pushed off the hill, frantically flapping the mechanical wings. And as this is rotten history, I have a feeling this will not end well, although I am hoping Marin flies. Instead of crashing, however, Marin successfully glided a distance of some 400 yards in an altitude of 18 to 20 feet. He even managed to cross a nearby river before one of the iron hinges on his wings broke, and he, he and his machine went crashing into the ground. When his companions finally caught up to him, they found him only lightly and slightly injured. He was furious that the machine had broken and was intent on repairing it for another try, but when people in the nearby town learned of his attempt to fly, they denounced him as an evil lunatic, surrounded his machine, and destroyed it. The crowd then armed themselves, went to their state capital, and protested against the government's imposition of gravity. The crowd is, crowd's destruction of the flying machine sent Marine into a serious depression from which he never recovered, never tried to fly again, and died seven years later at the age of 44. History books rarely mention him except in Spain where he is recognized as a pioneer of aviation. Isn't it amazing how those who oppose science always go down in history books as idiots? You'd think they would learn by now, but again, they are idiots. In Rotten History, May 15, 1850, 170 years ago this Friday, a U.S. Cavalry Regiment massacred Native American members of the Pomo Group on an island in Clear Lake, California. The Pomo, which has got to be the best name for any Native American group. They were so into postmodernism, apparently. The Pomo had earlier been captured and enslaved by white settlers who had settlers who had forced them to work as cowboys and on starvation wages and who had also sexually abused their daughters because remember slavery wasn't only for black people white people thought everyone without the lilliest of white skins could be enslaved and should be enslaved after the pomo rebelled against their white captors and killed them the cavalry was cavalry was called in because the US military has a long history of supporting slavery. Arriving at what would later become known as Bloody Island, the white soldiers killed between 150 and 200 men, women, and children. They shot some of the people while using their bayonets on others. They also killed children and infants by stepping on their skulls or smashing their heads against the trunks of trees because, Jesus, these were evil, evil white people. Then they moved on to a nearby river where they slaughtered another 75 indigenous people. One six-year-old girl named Nika survived the Bloody Island Massacre by hiding underwater, using a hollow reed from a wild plant as a breathing tube. Otherwise, white people would have just erased this from history. She would later take the Anglo name of Lucy Moore and live to the age of 110, and I'm betting the images of that day plague Nika for the rest of her life. Jesus, that's really rotten history. And this is hell... Alex, please tell everybody who's on tomorrow's show. Alex Blanchett will be on to talk about his book, Porkopolis, American Animality, Standardized Life, and the Factory Farm. And then on Wednesday? Uh, Layla Khalili will be on to talk about her book, The Sinews of War and Trade. And then on Thursday, we don't know yet? Still working on uh, Thursday and then Jeffy. I sent you an idea yesterday for Thursday. What was it again? Uh, Roper. Oh, yeah, Michael Roper, because he's got an article at, what is that website again? Chicago? Hunter? 
What eater? Is it eater? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, I thought it was an interview with Michael Roper from the Hopleaf, who's our beer correspondent. Apparently, he has a full-length article that he wrote himself, and I was uh, starting to peruse it the other day, and it looks like a great article on uh, how restaurants are coping with COVID-19. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank Pavlos Rufos for returning to This Is Hell. Alex Jerry for producing. Thanks to Ronaldo for Rotten History. Special thanks to Theron Humiston and Richard Norwood, who, without their work, our website and this studio wouldn't be running right now. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host. I just said that. Follow us on Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. There's a special thanks to Theron again. I'm so tired. <laughs> this is not the media. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>